Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast with me, Mark Cribb, and today we are traveling overseas again back to Shanghai in China. Now, I personally find most things absolutely fascinating, as those of you who listen to the podcast regularly will already know. I can get equally as excited about a beekeeper explaining the bee wiggle and dance, like when I met Mark Rogers in episode 63 or chatting to the Institute of Hospitality like when I met Peter Ducker just a few days ago in episode 85. So even without the backdrop of a global pandemic, I'd be excited to chat to an operator based in one of China's most dynamic cities just to learn about the nuances of operating in such a different environment. Add to that the opportunity that we are looking to China, running a couple of months ahead of us from a pandemic timeline perspective, and I really enjoyed getting to chat to Nat Alexander from Home Slice Pizza about his experience both during the pandemic, but particularly around some of the operational challenges they have put in place since reopening. Now, Nat used to work in London for KPMG and a few other accountancy firms before moving to Shanghai to set up a restaurant, so he is very well placed to understand the nuances of the very different cultures. I found Nat's descriptions of the challenges of acquiring PPE in China fascinating, in part due to the timing of the crisis around Chinese New Year and everyone being on holiday and factories closed. I guess if it was hard to get hold of equipment in China itself, it is no surprise that the international community was also struggling. Uh, We also touch on how technology was used to help release the lockdown, such as a compulsory app on everybody's phone that showed either a green or a red QR code that had to be scanned to enter a venue. There's obviously been a lot of chat about using an app in the UK in a similar way. And in China, getting a green code depended on where you had been, who had you been with, and things like your temperature. Now, China closed its borders over two months ago, so almost nobody who is not a Chinese national has been able to fly into China for the past two months. And there's a lot of debate going on at the moment in the UK about a two-week quarantine for the UK travel industry for people to returning to or travelling to the United Kingdom. Now, with China completely closed to visitors for such a long period of time, clearly we are looking at very different international solutions. And that's insight into why China has been so good at managing the virus with its very big to very small approach to government was fascinating. But you really need to listen to his explanation to get the gist of that one. And we also touch on how long it's taking for any semblance of normality to return to visitor numbers even eight weeks since the lockdown release. And some interesting comparative KPIs around employee percentage, rental charges and VAT, which has been reduced from only 6% to nothing by the Chinese government to help stimulate the economy. And that's closing advice to the UK to probably just avoid the news and use your own brains reminded me of a quote that I heard this week saying that if only we could lock down the British media for 30 days, we may well indeed remove 80% of the problems. I will let you make your own minds up on that one. Now remember, please just pause the podcast right now for a few seconds, pick up your phone, scroll down to the review section on Apple Podcasts or your player of choice and hit the five star review and click on that subscribe button for me. It really, really helps me out. And just that few seconds of your time, hopefully is a fair exchange for the hours and hours of free content. And if you do fancy buying me a thank you beer, I'll be even more grateful if you head over to our Patreon page, which you can find just by Googling 
Humans of Hospitality. Okay, thank you so much, and I really hope you enjoy the episode. Nat Alexander, all the way from Shanghai and Home Slice Pizza, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the podcast today. And uh, yeah, you are genuinely in China. Are you at home or your work? I'm at home right now. Uh, Excellent. So yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. So you're, uh, yeah, what time is it there? It is nearly nine o'clock in the evening. Amazing. Okay, well, look, thank you so much. So it's mid-afternoon here. It's glorious sunny day, which has uh, been pretty much the case since we got locked down, ironically. Well, that's a good thing. A... <laughs> yeah, although I do run a restaurant on the beach, so um, ah. it's been heartbreaking to, ah, okay. <laughs> to, yeah. to imagine how, <laughs> how good it could have been. Um, so, yeah, can I just start, uh, Nat, with uh, how long have you lived in China? You know, why are you there? And has it always been in Shanghai specifically? Uh, yeah, I've been in China since 2006. My wife moved here. I visited a fair few times in that year and then moved properly at the beginning of 2007. So uh, I guess this is year 14 that I'm in at the moment. I've been here 13 years. Um, only been living in Shanghai all that time. Um, moved here initially um, to, to open a restaurant. And my wife, my wife moved here for work. Um, her father was born here. Um, though she's from, from the U.S., um and uh yeah yeah we visited and liked it and it's been our home yeah. for longer than i initially expected it would be um really so you say specifically you 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 chose shanghai specifically to open a restaurant yes i, I hadn't been in the restaurant business before moving here i've been working for a accountancy firm and then for uh for various financial service institutions doing like internal control stuff which uh well, it was as boring as it sounds for me. <laughs> was that in the UK? Or? <laughs> yeah, and then quit was... all that and came here to open a restaurant. Nice, that is a change. Was that in, in the UK that you were doing the accountancy, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was in uh, in London. So it was all KPMG oh, wow. and banks and insurance companies. And, yeah, no, uh, I love a long that. time That's ago. That's kind of why now. I love... Yeah, it's kind of why I love hospitality, though, because you go from yeah being an accountant in London to flogging pizza in Shanghai. It's an amazing sector for life's kind of crazy journey. Absolutely. Uh, and in this instance, a global journey, which is cool. So um, I don't know Shanghai. I've been to Chengdu. It was a very long time ago. I traveled over sort of through southwest China into Tibet, but I don't know Shanghai uh, at all, having not been there. Can you just describe the city a little bit? How big is it? What sort of place is it? Has it got a lot, a lot of uh, expat community, I guess? Uh, it is, uh, depends on the numbers, somewhere between 21 and 28 million people. Um, wow. It's the most un-China part of China. It's always been its own city, a very outward-looking city, um, very different to the, the rest of it. There's not a great deal of sort of old China left here. It's been massively modernized in the last 30 years, um, home to several of the world's tallest buildings. Um, but interestingly, it also has many different town centres. Um, uh, maybe, I mean, there's probably probably 10, 15 different centres of town because it's so big and over such a large area. So you don't feel like you're living in that big a city. Um, I look out of my window at home. I live in what's called the former French concession, um, the former part of the city that was owned, run by the French back in the uh, 19th century. Um, I look out my window, I'm looking over villas and tree-lined streets, um, and in the distance I can see big towers. So while it's massive, on a local level, it actually is very neighbourhoody, and you know, you know, you know the people you bump into along your street, and uh, it's it's it doesn't feel like you're living in one of the world's biggest metropolises. 
Yeah, amazing. It sounds great, actually. I, I did a little bit of research while we were chatting, and I have to say I travelled quite a lot in Asia, um, but it was something like 20 years ago, you know, on my way and to Australia and on my way back, and and loved it. And, yeah, looking at the photos and the pictures of the place, I thought, oh, my goodness, yeah, I really would like to hit the road again. But, yeah, it looks looks like a fantastic uh, fantastic space. Um, and then your restaurants, can you just explain a little bit about the uh, the venues that you operate, how many you've got, sort of their locations? Yeah, so I, we, we have uh, three branches of our pizza restaurant at the moment. Um all actually within about three kilometers of where I live, very conveniently. Um, that, that's not intentional. It's more yeah, the nature of where I live. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've got one which is in, the first one is in a bar district called Fame 158, which is um, in a park, but underground in the park, open air, sort of like one level down. And it's where there's, there's now three nightclubs with a fourth about to open, several bars. There's a German bar, a French bar, a Mexican bar, uh, a Vietnamese restaurant that's now turned into a bar. And it's 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 a place where people go out and it has some of the, the bigger rowdy nights out. It's the place where some people would go for New Year's Eve. Um, and we, we, we have a pizza slice shop selling pizza to drunk people there. Um, that's what the original premise was. It's moved to be a bit more than that now, but uh, that, that, that was why we built it. And the product came after the uh, location was found. So it was like, okay, we're going to have a load of bars. What do we want to do? We're not going to do drink. We'll do We'll do food for them to eat when they're drunk. Um, yeah, and that's so this was your first well. location. That's right? the first location. Then we opened yeah. a second one in a kind of residential and business district called Dongshan Park, and it's just near a park. Um, so we're just on the street side there, um, in a kind of co-working slash F and B space, uh, which isn't performing terribly well in terms of foot traffic, but does amazing delivery business. Um, and then the third one is in a mall in an area called Shujiaque, which is probably it's probably one of the top three centers of the town. It's a very, very big Shuhui uh, district is uh, one of the biggest and most well-developed districts. And this is kind of the heart of it. So we're, we're just near there, but in a very local mall next to a, a supermarket and next to various small places. Um, and there we, again, we do mostly delivery business out of there, a bit of in-store business. Um, so yeah. Amazing. Uh, and so how, how old is the oldest and how young is the youngest? The oldest is 2017, uh, Chinese New Year 2017. We measure everything by Chinese New Year here because <laughs> that basically means January or February, depending on the year. Um, yeah. And then the youngest we opened last October. Uh, yeah, last October. Amazing. Uh, and you have an exceptional reputation for a good pizza. I, mean, I read a few write-ups. I think my friend is uh, probably a customer, the person that introduced us. So, uh, yeah, congratulations on all you've done. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's nice making a product that makes people smile. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, and pizza, pizza is one that uh, a lot of people like. So yeah, it's, it's uh, very rewarding. Yeah, was there many pizza places in uh, in Shanghai already? Or? Oh god, yeah, yeah. I mean, Pizza Hut have been here for the longest time. Um, they have across China, they're probably maybe over two thousand stores now. Um, the, the big American chains are here, like Papa John's and Domino's. Um, and then on the smaller side, there's more stuff like. Italian places mostly there's a few Neapolitan places and Pizza Express from the UK they've been here for quite a long time in fact my first okay. restaurant I ended up uh passing the space on to Pizza Express um and they they operated their restaurant I've just closed it there uh in the last few weeks um and then but the, the, there was a bit of a change around the time that we opened our place uh at the same time Joe's Pizza uh from New York also opened a kilometer away from our store so we kind of have opened at the same time as each other both doing slices both doing new york style pizza um so things things have been changing there's a roman 
Al Talio uh, slice style place. And I heard about another slice place that's open. So things things are changing here. Um, right, yeah, m- moving fast. I think Pizza Express is owned by China now, isn't it? I think I read that they owe the Chinese £1.2 billion of investment and paying like 100 million quid a week in interest or something absolutely it, insane. Yeah, so it was Honey Capital, who I think are Hong Kong-based, who bought them. Um, and they, uh, they, they, yeah, they, I think they're part of Lenovo, actually. So what, but yeah. what IBM became, they're kind of the investment arm of Lenovo. <laughs> Right. Um, so yeah, and yeah I, yeah, I read some ridiculous statistic. Like every single store in the UK is in hot for one million pounds. I just, it's just absolutely nuts. bonkers. I, it is nuts. It is nuts. Yeah, you look at it, and uh, yeah, how they come out the other side of this, goodness knows. But anyway, we'll come to that. In fact, that's a segue in. So I wanted to chat with you um, specifically. I guess you know this is a global pandemic, and uh, we're all looking to China. We're all looking to China when this first started, or so, you know, noticing the news. But now we're very much looking because they seem to have. Uh, dealt with well i suppose the uh, the impact of the pandemic and, and a lot of places now have reopened and we're all looking at you guys to sort of see how it works and how we operate but, but before we get into sort of what's happened uh post pandemic i suppose can you just talk a little bit about how you how, how this panned out you know wuhan's a fair distance from shanghai you presumably noticed this happening at the time did you think instantaneously this is going to be huge or was it considered to be a uh, small fry watching from a distance can you just chat us through that yeah sure so i mean I mentioned before Chinese New Year is kind of the main pivot of the year. So we're coming up to Chinese New Year. It was an early one this year. So going through our mind was, okay, we're going to have a good February for a change. Um, and this news is is starting to come onto our radar. I would guess probably middle of January, 15th of January, we're hearing about this spate of strange illnesses in, in Wuhan. And uh, then as it gets closer to Chinese New Year, I mean, I, I remember talking to him, to our operations director and saying, yeah, you know, it's, it's a bit worrying with everyone going back home because this is the, the, the world's largest uh, human migration happens for Chinese New Year. The whole, everyone in the country starts moving around, which is pretty terrible timing, I would have thought, for, for a pandemic to be happening. I think in retrospect, maybe that was a good thing because um, it meant that everyone was in somewhere where they could, they didn't need to work, they didn't need to move around. Um, but I was actually looking back through, we have, we have a group chat in WeChat, which is the, the equivalent of WhatsApp, and looking back through the stuff that we were talking about at that time, and there was a conversation we were having like, hmm, should we get masks for the staff in the stores? And this is around like the 20th of January. And we were like, well, it might, people might worry because they might think that our staff are ill, but maybe it's better just to be safer than sorry. And we started talking about all this stuff, and then we went away for Chinese New Year. I think we went away on the 22nd. And for, for Chinese families, it's a time like Christmas when you go back to be with your, your, your family. But for foreigners that live here, it's a time to get out of China and go to Thailand or go to Bali or any of these places in there, or to go skiing to Japan or maybe to go back to your home country. And we, we tend to go off to the Southeast Asia and we went to visit my wife's other side of her family in, uh, in, in Philippines. And while we were over in the Philippines, it started to obviously get quite a lot worse um, I think it was on the 29th of January, the government announced, uh, and Chinese New Year was due to finish. There's a seven-day holiday then. It was due to finish on the 30th. They said, actually, we're going to add two more days to the Chinese New Year holiday. And then within a, about 12 hours, they said, actually, we're going to add another seven days on top of those two days. We're going to add another nine days. Or no, they had another nine days on top of the two days. And at that point, we started talking, me and my business partner, our operations director, we were like, what's going on here we can't rely on them to be making a consistent decision here and at this point we kept one store open in shanghai we closed two of them um and all the staff were meant to be coming back on the 31st um so then we said well 
our staff should not come back. We're going to close the one store that's open while we decide what we're going to do. Um, and the government had actually said for that extended part of the holiday, everyone had to be paid triple time if they were working. Um, what we found out after is the point of that was they didn't want people to open. They wanted to make it so expensive. So there was at a time when there's so little business um, to, to be paying your staff double just didn't make any sense. And they basically wanted to put people off opening their businesses without actually telling them to do so. Maybe that was a way to manage a panic. I'm not sure. Um, so then, then we're in the Philippines and we were meant to be coming back to Shanghai, I think on the first, I can't remember, I'd have to check that, but it's, um, and we decided that we wouldn't go back to Shanghai. We'd go over to Malaysia where I have a sister living and visit her. Um, and, uh, we, we, while we're in Malaysia, it wasn't really much of a holiday. We couldn't see my sister because her son's school had said that if they were in contact with anyone who had been in China in the next 14 days, they would have to do 14 days quarantine, um, and then both my wife and I ended up working on stuff for, for, for to get ready. So um, we were writing kind of uh, protocols, hygiene protocols for the staff. Um, we were buying uh, gloves, masks, trying to buy masks. I couldn't find any in Malaysia. Um, Rob, uh, the operations director, he was in Thailand. He went and bought quite a lot of masks, buying hand sanitizer. All this stuff was just out of stock. And because Chinese New Year was taking place, no one was delivering. No factories were producing. Um, so we were just trying to get as much as possible that we could open for as long as possible. And we were like making calculations like, okay, if we have 1,000 masks, how long does that mean we can open the stores for? Um, gathering this stuff. And yeah, basically just working through. We have, we have dormitories. That's another funny thing for F&B here. I mean, Shanghai's not a cheap city to live in. I mean, rents are maybe not London levels, but they're not far off it. Um, so, and our, our staff, you know, a, a junior chef in our business is probably being paid 800 pounds a month um for his salary so we have to provide dormitories for those guys to live in um so then we had to start thinking about how we we're going to manage the dormitories because we have i think we have then five dormitories two female ones three male ones for the three stores and we had some staff who've been staying in them and then we had some staff who were coming back we had to work out how we're going to move all of these people around to make sure that the guys that came back who then had to go through 14 days of isolation, weren't in contact with the guys who were here. So we had to do moving all of those around. Um, and this, this, this is, so we eventually came back to Shanghai, I think on the 9th or 10th of February, um, with the plan to try and open one or two of the stores in the next couple of the days. Um, and what, what, what we decided, the store that had been open was actually the weakest performing one. So we opened the stores in order of which had the best delivery business. Um, cause that was all we were going to do. And we'd also decided we weren't going to open any of the stores for in-store business. Actually within about two days of us getting back and starting this process, the government said that no stores are allowed to open for in-store business. They're allowed to do delivery and pick up only. Um, luckily we'd already planned for that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think we got the first store open on the 12th. So we had that we let the staff start on the 10th. They had to, I mean, for pizza, we have a 48 hour dough fermentation so they had to get the dough ready two days before we could open we did one store clean the store um and then we went and got that store open did the second store and we only had i think we had six cooks in shanghai at that point um maybe four we didn't have basically we didn't have enough cooks to open all of the stores and we only opened for limited hours um and uh so i'm i'm, I'm the legal representative of our companies um, which means I'm legally responsible for anything that goes on in them. And one of the, one of the things the government says, if there are any incidences 
of COVID-19 breaking out in your stores, legal representatives will be held liable for them. Um, so obviously we, we already wanted to be very careful, but that's another incentive for me to be very careful to yeah, make sure that really everything's, um, everything's fine. So we were disinfecting the store. We were, you know, on the, on the third day, I went to the, yeah, I think we'd opened this first store two days and I went back up there and I started taking photos of what our staff were doing to demonstrate uh, the pre precautions we were taping. So all our staff wearing masks, all wearing uh, rubber gloves, which was a pain in the ass for making pizza, for opening up the dough balls, kind of stuck to the dough. Um, that's something we've since stopped, though. We're still wearing the gloves for other parts of the process. Um, you know, taking photos of us. We already used warming bags to put the boxes in, but then we were wiping the seals with... Uh, with alcohol wipes, wrapping them in cling films that's kind of doubly protected. And initially we were putting them on tables within the room. So we have three different delivery partners like Deliveroo um, uh, here. So we had a different table for each of them. And the idea was that the guys would come in, we'd put the pizza on there, they'd collect it, they'd walk out and we'd limit that human to human interaction in, in the store. Um, we had a few things like, uh, and, and, and still we still do for the, the staff in the stores, taking temperatures on a daily basis. Uh, so we had to have digital thermometers. We had to take temperatures of the delivery drivers when they arrived. We had to take temperatures of suppliers when they came in. And anyone recording a temperature above 37.2 degrees, I think, basically had to go and go to a fever hospital and present themselves saying, I've got a temperature over this level. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the... It seems an awfully long time ago. It's been one of the longest starts of the year. That's that. Yeah, that's kind of our life up until about three months ago. That was kind of the yeah. first stage of it. Okay. So was this was this while because once they decided to lock down Wuhan fully, was this after this or was this during? Yeah, this time? Wuhan was locked down. I think from the twenty third of January was when they started that off. Right. And did so, did Shanghai ever have a similar level, or were you allowed to trade like this all the way through? No. Uh, so Shanghai. Basically, over Chinese year, New Year, everyone was, I guess, yeah, I mean, I can't remember what you're calling it in the UK. I know in the UK, in the US, they're calling it shelter in place, but everyone was kind of self-isolating at home, uh, yeah. going out the bare minimum. You weren't meant to go out a lot. Um, it was only, we, we live in a compound that has two gates. One of those gates was locked. You had to go out of the other one. You had to be uh, having your temperature taken. You had to be wearing masks all the time. So people basically over that Chinese New Year period just didn't go out at all. Um, and then by the time I got back, we were meant to isolate for 14 days, but I had to go around to the stores and deliver, uh, gloves, deliver masks to the staff just, and also check on their wellbeing because it's kind of a weird situation to work in. So giving them a bit of a uh, moral support, but I would go out, I would have an electric scooter. I go to the store, drop the stuff off, say a quick hello, not interact with them at all and kind of go out. So I did that probably every other day during, during that period. But other than that, we were just staying at home pretty solidly until I, I think about the 20th of February. Um, and then companies were allowed to open. Not all were, I think all companies were allowed to open by the 25th. Initially people had to work from home for the first week. So I guess 10th to 17th. And then I think, yeah, 17th to 24th, some offices could, could open. My, my wife's office was able to open, but not everyone could. And then from the 24th, people were much, pretty much going back. I think we were first allowed to have in-store customers around the beginning of April. Uh, no, around the beginning of March, sorry. Um, we could start to have sit-in customers. But then we had a whole load of procedures around that too. Like we had to, everyone had these QR codes, which I know the UK government's still talking about and whether they're an invasion of privacy, but they're kind of 
tracking who you've been next to. Um, they're based on one of the payment apps here and everyone's using mobile phone payments here. It's basically using cash is an anomaly here, using cards is an anomaly, everyone uses mobile phone, which may have helped not spread the, the, the disease quite so quickly because no one's, no one's handling money to each other. Um, but yeah, so we have this app and it has a green QR code on. Uh, if you've just, and that, if you've, for example, just come into the country seven days ago, not that anyone has, you wouldn't have a green QR code. So you couldn't go into malls, you couldn't go into shops. People wouldn't let you in because you don't have the right code to get in there. It's a clever little system there, isn't it? Yeah, I, yeah. I like it. So how do you, how do you get a, a green QR code then? It's based on where you've been. Uh, so have you been in China? And every 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 foreigner in China right now has been here. I, think, I mean, they locked it down end of March. So all of us have been here since the end of March. And no, no one can leave. If you leave, you don't get back in at the moment. Um, so there are no incoming flights or there are, but there you are, have to be quarantined. There are, some, there are only Chinese people on them, only Chinese passport holders. Oh, no, no foreigner could get in. They're now talking about some special exceptions for people who, uh, like global chief executives. Uh, my wife knows of someone who has got in, who has a large amount, three quarters of his businesses in Wuhan. So obviously, to stimulate the economy there, they're allowing him to come back. But we've got many, many friends who, when they thought things were getting hairy here, went out, went to the US, went to other countries, and are, are unable to get back in. And examples of those are people who are like me are legal representatives of their com companies they're the main person in their company but they're not, they're not there's no exceptions being made for those people um mm. talk of change in june um, like certain countries certain businesses being allowed back in but yeah it's uh, pretty, pretty, these, pretty crazy yeah air bridges as uh, as the uk government were chatting about yesterday because uh 10 days ago they were saying nobody could uh, come into the country at all and now they're talking well they, i think they can but they've got to be quarantined for 14 days now they're talking up talking about certain air bridges to, to, to countries that have lesser infections but it's all pretty fluid i think yeah um, so when you saw the scale of the response, then just going back a little bit, well, you know, I mean, Wuhan's a big old city, isn't it? And presumably, you know, we, were you shocked to see the level of closure? Because certainly we were, you know, I think from abroad, we were thinking, my God, how on earth do you close down a city of that size? Never imagining that, you know, we would then fundamentally, you know, we were thinking, God, how hard would it be to close down London and then pretty much close down the country? And then, you know, the first indication that this was actually heading our way, I suppose, was uh, Italy when they pretty much shut down the whole of Italy. And it, it was mind blowing from our perspective. But within China, I guess, you know, the Chinese government have got um, a, a different reputation, I suppose, on uh, how to manage people and, and how to instill their wishes and stuff. So were you surprised to see the scale of the response? And I suppose, were you concerned that if this did go global, that other countries wouldn't be able to respond in the same way as China? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was surprised how quickly it happened. Um, I wasn't that surprised at the uh willingness of the people here to accept that and one of the first things i said to my my wife was like well i can't imagine them getting away with people just accepting it in the uk or the us there'll be plenty of people who'd be up in arms about this as as we've seen particularly in the us <laughs> these people protesting against their, their right to be able to leave their houses and everything um yeah uh yeah i mean the the the, effect, the, the effectiveness of the government here is is interesting because it's the whole thing the way China thinks about things is this kind of big to small. So that can be something as mundane as your address. You know, my address in Shanghai is not this flat, this street, this this district, Shanghai. It always starts from the big. So it starts with China, Shanghai, district, street, apartment. 
And that's the way the government runs as well. So you've got the government up in Beijing, but the actual execution of everything comes down to a minute level of kind of community participation. So within our district, it's subdivided into, I guess you'd call them sub-districts. Um, Chinese name doesn't say that, but uh, you've got the sub-district. And then within that, there's individual Hui, um, which is like the neighborhood committee. And that makes it sound like some party apparatus, but it's kind of a way for executing things. So there's a neighborhood committee responsible for the two or three streets in which we live, the, the block that we're in. Um, and those were the people we had to report to when we got back. And these are just like a load of uh, mid-40s people who sit around smoking fags most of the time and not doing an awful lot. But they, they were responsible for it. enforcing sounds a bit strong, but for making sure that everyone was complying with this. Um, so it wasn't like some big, I mean, it may have been very different in Wuhan, but it wasn't like policemen coming around and enforcing stuff. It was kind of this, your, your neighbours making sure that you're following the rules. Um, there's always, a, obviously, this is, one thing that's become very apparent in this is the, the biases of all medias in all countries of talking about what other countries are doing. Um, but there's always these talk of draconian measures in China, but the actual execution of these draconian measures is not like jackbooted uh, military guys coming to your door and making you do stuff. It's some old, old auntie from around the corner coming in, taking your temperature and making sure you're doing something. No, the, the threat of disobedience is still there, but uh, the, you could get in trouble for not abiding by the rules, but I guess that's the same anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's been interesting. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Yeah, so these people in the in the local community then, the, um, they're, they're paid for by uh, local government. I'm trying to think what they do the rest of the time if they're not having to enforce, uh, please all stay at home, there's a pandemic going on. This, this infrastructure is paid or voluntary? I'm not sure. I think it's probably paid, but not at a massively high level. They might be retirees or people who've had other jobs. Uh, I mean, the, the manifestations I've seen of them before have been like a notice goes up downstairs and saying that there's a special uh, allowance available for old age pensioners over 65. Um, or maybe there's uh, free food or something like that. There's kind of, I guess, district level initiatives that are being rolled out here. I've never had to deal with the local guys before. I had to deal with the people responsible for our sub-district when trying to get my son into the school that he's at. But uh, in general, I've had no interaction with them. Um, and, they, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're very they're very human people. They're perfect, like I, I had an issue, our, our guy who runs our building, so even on a building level, there's a busy, busy body he's a busy body responsible for our building and he wasn't opening the gate out to the street and we were seeing lots of the other gates open and i talked to my neighbor and i went along to see what you way away and i'm like could you do are we able to have our gate open now I'm like well it's, it's currently level two so you're allowed to have the gate open but you're not allowed to have it open big enough for cars to go through the car needs to go through has to be unlocked and then locked again um but they they know what building we're in they, they i guess it's quite good you mean you have a local government person who knows every every part of the neighborhood rather than it just being run from the central district um yeah but I, I don't really know what they do the rest of the time no <laughs> no it's 
it, it is fascinating. I guess, yeah, very different reaction in the UK. I mean, here we went partly there, managed to recruit, I think it was nearly a million volunteers in the end to at least try and help uh, feed people and, yeah, get, get volunteers out to sort of care in the community and vulnerable groups and all that kind of stuff. So people were asked to step forward and, and a lot more people stepped forward than were needed. And now they're trying to recruit, I think it was something like 30,000 people uh, for contact tracing. So, yeah, moving on to the next stage and saying, right, yeah, let, let's get much better at, at testing and uh, stamping down more and more on a localized regional level i suppose than on a national level speaking of which because china is a very diverse country isn't it huge parts of, of rural and then some of the biggest cities in the globe was yeah. was the response the same uh, across the nation i guess it was implemented in slightly different ways as you've just alluded to but was it fundamentally this is you know the whole of china is closed please stay at home i don't know i i know more what happened in the big cities because that's the news that i follow so beijing had a far heavier lockdown than shanghai did uh, friends in Beijing. I have a a friend. She, she she's normally based in Shanghai. Works in Beijing some of the time. She went up there to work and couldn't get back to Shanghai for a considerable period, like a month and a half. Didn't see her husband and kid for a month and a half because she was she just couldn't leave Beijing. If she left there, she wouldn't be able to go back to work, and her company required her to stay there. Um, and we yeah we heard a lot of stories about Beijing being under far far heavier lockdown and friends not my friends, but other friends of friends who have F&B up there, they weren't able to open in any shape or form for a long period. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So not not even to do delivery? No, no. Um, and yeah, I think Shenzhen also had it quite differently. They had a quite a large, they had quite a big outbreak down there. Whereas Shanghai never had a big outbreak. I think there were officially three to 400 cases. I mean, maybe those numbers were underestimated. Maybe people had it and didn't show any any symptoms, but there was no, nothing big, and the number of deaths was very small in Shanghai. Um, most of those coming from outside people who've been to Wuhan. Yeah. Okay. Well, certainly the uh, the restrictions are definitely still playing a part because Anne McClellan, our mutual friend, and a bit of a shout out to her because she'll probably listen to this. Who connected <laughs> us? She's still living in Scotland, I think, because she can't get back in. So Chris, her husband, is in Shanghai, and uh, Anne's been here since the start of this because yeah, still can't get back into the country, which uh, yeah must be a big challenge living apart. Yeah. There's a fair few of these orphaned husbands left here with uh, families abroad. And maybe they'll be one of the first groups that are allowed back in um, when they do start to loosen up borders. Um, it, would, it would be a fairly humane thing to do. I mean, be, a, be apart yeah. from young children for that long is pr- pr- pretty hard, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, really, really tricky. Um, so as things, you, you were allowed to trade all the way through in some guys, albeit you couldn't stay in. I mean, you know, the reaction in the UK is very much hospitality got hit first, you know, complete shutdown. Takeaways were allowed to stay open and some restaurants have been allowed to to pivot into uh, yeah in, into takeaway and delivery. But but basically, yeah, hardest hit, you know, first to, first to be shut down, looks like we're going to be last... Um, to be released you were given uh, official notice then so you, you were you were locked down completely apart from delivery and then you were told right from this date you know was it kind of a staggered return to work I suppose was it from this date you can allow some people back in there's been conversations here about maybe people with terraces might be allowed open first but anybody kind of underground relying on air conditioning might be later was it a staggered release or, or and you know and have they yeah, managed it was that different 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 district by district. Um, and then we'd hear things from people in other districts and then go and inquire from our local FDA, Food and Drug Administration, but they're responsible for operations of restaurants, um, what the situation was. So I think we opened our our Zhongshan Park store first, um, but they had very strict rules. We had to make everyone show their QR code. We had to take all the temperatures. Um, our 
the district our main store is in, the the, the one in the bar district, uh, actually was allowing us to open, but the owners of the bar district were not allowing us to open for a bit longer. Um, so it was kind of relying on what other friends in the area were experiencing, then going and double checking it. And a lot of the time it was like, yeah, you can open, but you're still liable for any cases that arise in your store. Um, and initially customers were allowed to sit in there, but they weren't meant to sit closer than one meter. And people dining together weren't meant to sit facing each other. They were meant to sit next to each other side by side um, so that presumably they couldn't share spit and or spit, spit on each other while eating or something like that. Um, yeah, that was quite a, that was quite strange going around uh, our mall location, seeing, like, and at the start, it was very few people doing this, but seeing like a couple sitting a meter apart side by side at a table having lunch or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's odd if you've come in together, isn't it? You kind of understand yeah. it if it's other groups. The meter apart thing's interesting because we're two meters apart here. Was it was it always a meter apart? Was that outside and inside, or was that specific yeah, for restaurants? Yeah, yeah, there was. And in fact, we it was we were able to open first inside uh, before we could open outside. Uh, outside really? was a bit 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 iffy, and I know of some friends who were in a district that was allowed to open earlier, uh, but had people drinking and smoking outside, and they then got told by their local police that they had to stop doing that because people were complaining about it. So it was a lot of those uh, neighbourhood level busybodies and the, the sight of foreigners outside uh, was, was, was worrying them. So they were told by their local police to stop doing it, even though they were allowed officially to operate outside. Yeah, interesting. So apart from keeping uh, tables a metre apart, yeah, temperature checks as we were coming in, we, we've seen images of, you know, perspex screens separating people. I guess we're all interested in what, legislation the government has been going to put in place were there any other specific changes i mean you talked about cleaning and temperature checks these have to be logged do they can people come yeah, around and check did, you're, you're following it or? yeah it was kind of a bit of an annoyance like you know the people would come into the mall and they would be checked with a temperature check and then they come to our store and we'd have to note it down um then they place they'd, they'd have to be wearing a mask when they came in then they take their mask off and eat and you weren't meant to hang around and socialize um but there was no ban on alcohol. I know some uh, Hong Kong has had a ban on alcohol. I believe Philippines has had a ban on alcohol. Just kind of stop socialising. But uh, it was just you're encouraged to be kind of perfunctory in your in your taking of your meals outside. Go and eat quickly and go. And I remember going out in the early days and just you know being out working and going for lunch somewhere. You know there'd be two or three tables in a place. So people weren't going out. And even now people are have been very hesitant. Like last weekend was the first weekend when it felt like things were really getting back to normal with people actually going out in close to the numbers they would have been at this time of year normally. Really? And what are you now? You've been reopened for nearly eight weeks, is it? Something like that or a bit less? Oh, gosh. What are we now? Middle of May. I mean, yeah, open to the public. Yeah, nearly eight weeks. Uh, right. Come into the stores, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so you when you did reopen, then yeah, that that was the the primary change apart from the legislative impacts. The big one is whether you were allowed or whether you weren't allowed to open. And you know, we're talking about the sector in this country saying, look, if you've got to have two meters between table, then any of the on trade, it's it's almost unviable to operate because we'd have to lose sixty, seventy percent of our covers. But no matter what you do, your experience was just a lot of people didn't come out anyway, yeah. even if they were allowed to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our our the bar district store makes most of its profit from people coming in and hanging out in bars and drinking the, the revenues there even in the best point until a couple of weeks ago were 50 percent in store of what they would normally be um like i say that changed a bit last weekend but yeah i mean those first few weeks it was massive shortfalls on where it would normally be 
Um, but it's it, it there was a constantly improving curve. And an interesting thing was everyone was like, "Oh, because we've already got a pretty established delivery business, which was very fortunate going into this." Um, and everyone was always bumping into people. They say, "Oh, you must be doing really well at the moment." I was like, actually, no, we're not. Our delivery levels were below where they were last year by quite a long way initially. And I think people were just a bit wary of getting deliveries as well. Um, you know, someone coming to your house and bringing you a product. And uh, that actually ended up being just drop off. So a delivery guy would normally come to the, your apartment door and give you a product. What it moved to is they would leave it by the front gate of the building, tell you it was there, and then you'd have to go down and collect it. But I think people were quite hesitant to do that because... You know, you're you're dealing with something that's been touched by some people in a store, been touched by a delivery guy, um, and that d- definitely affected business. Did a lot of businesses who weren't previously doing delivery also enter into that market at the same time? Or? Yes, which may have affected our business a, a, a little bit, I guess. Um, but I, I didn't bear any grudges for that. Um, I wanted yeah. everyone to be able to survive as well as possible. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even it's since closed, but even Hackersan, who you you'll you'll probably know from London, they ended up doing delivery, um, and doing you know they're a kind of hundred pound a head uh, fancy Chinese place, and they they were doing delivery packages. Yeah, interesting. So speaking of which, then everybody tried to pivot, tried to survive in some way. What's the situation? How many places have, uh, should we say, not reopened or reopened off the back of this? I appreciate not specific numbers, but general percentage. Are, are there a lot of people who haven't? have either chosen not to reopen or have a lot gone under during this journey? Not a lot. Um, I sense there might be some more coming down the line um, if the summer is weak or if there's a second wave coming. But there's been a few that closed, but they were kind of on the cards or planned prior to uh, it hitting. Um, so maybe it, it hastened their closing. Um, I think most people have been able to scrape by at this point i'm trying to think i mean hackersand's a big one uh zizzy which had opened uh from the uk about a year ago closed but i think they had more fundamental issues um there's been a few i mean yeah there haven't been a lot that have closed yet which is is good um I, i'd rather see a healthy f and b scene than one that's decimated um mm. i guess i mean part of it as well trying to being oh well I'm not sure it's a communist country because yeah, it's very capitalist, but based on, on, on the founding of the Communist Party, having very strong background in labour laws, the onus has been, there hasn't been a things like uh, the furloughing, government-supported furloughing. It's been, you're expected to support your staff, and if you have to let them go, uh, you're expected to pay them redundancy. Um, so many places have been happy to operate and to make enough money to pay their staff and to pay their rent um and just do that for a few months rather than you know you let a staff member go you've got to pay them a uh a month's salary for every year that they've worked for you so you've got a guy that's worked for you for three years well, you almost might as well keep him for over a, a three month quiet period than let him go and have to pay him those three months anyway yeah, well, that's good they can do it because from a survival perspective, I think the, the statistics were something like most of the hospitality venues in the UK had 17 days cash flow in their account. So even if they'd been told that you must pay your team, the reality is that most businesses would have gone under uh, in those first six weeks. So the furlough scheme is is the only thing that's probably just stopped a catastrophic collapse in the hospitality yeah. industry in the UK. But that might be due to 
you know, maybe higher rents, higher staff costs, higher tax system. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, I think I think without that furlough scheme, and that's the nervousness now is being told you can open. So some of the support disappears. But the reality being, you know, most of the uh, hospitality sector here seems to be running on sort of three to eight to eight percent margin. And most of the same that if, if you have a 60 percent drop in either in business or in covers, then mm. yeah, the model's not going to work, basically, particularly with the, you know, the crazy kind of rent levels and, and rates levels. Uh, is that something that potentially is different in Shanghai? Or uh... no, I'd love to say rents were a lot cheaper. Here. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm guessing it's probably not the case. So. They're, they're not. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I uh, don't have a problem with talking numbers. Our uh, our bar district store is probably including management fees. You know, all the stuff that the landlord charges you, but ultimately, to me, it's it's the rent. Um, that is probably about. Nine thousand pounds a month in rent. Uh, our Jongshan Park store is about twelve thousand pounds a month in rent. Um, yeah, our numbers. mall store is pretty is is cheap and is about probably about two thousand seven hundred pounds a month in rent. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, that, do, do, do you track similar KPIs sort of wage percentage? What would that be as a as a percentage of turnover? Uh, probably about. 20% we're normally running for, for, for wage bills. Uh, it's, it's a little bit distorted by the fact that me and our operations director and a few of our senior staff are spread across the different stores. Um, yep. But I mean, we're a real cost to the company. So I guess it makes yeah, sense absolutely. that we are. Yeah, and that and that's probably partly maybe just in a slightly different sector. But so the restaurant sector over here, you know, it used to be restaurants were mid twenties, then it was sort of stay sub thirty, and and most I speak to now are sort of getting on to more towards sort of thirty five percent potentially and even higher sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that that's unfortunately where a lot of the margin's gone, and a lot of that has been this sort of overinflation wage rises for the last uh, minimum wage and living wage, and then pension contributions and NLE contributions has all been sort of pushing the sector in the last few years. So that might be one area of difference i could i could probably get into the uh, kpi statty side all day but uh, so yeah. well, some people would cheer to but some people might not how about vat though last one as a matter of interest do you have a tax on sales or we do um it's slightly different for different stores so it's a six percent uh on because of the size of one of our businesses uh it moves it into a higher category so it's six percent but that has been waived completely uh since the beginning of the year um as a result of this or yeah yeah, so we have paid no VAT on any sales, which is, you know, that's actually a big helping hand. <laughs> it is huge. Yeah, some in some in the UK hospitality is fighting for. So we're still on twenty percent technically. So that's we can nuts. we can defer, but uh, yeah, we <laughs> cannot not pay. Uh, so yeah, twenty percent taxes. It's. Uh yeah it's that's that's part of the challenge that we we're all sort of saying yes how do we come out the other side of this even you know yeah rent negotiations was, was did anybody negotiate on those rents were they were they uh re- yeah. reduced at least while you had to enforce closure so um yeah we did we did try we tried to in the bar district we tried to negotiate on mass with the landlord uh who turned around to us sent us a clause from our contract that said if any of us were late in paying rent then we would immediately uh in breach of contract and we required to leave and that she had plenty of people waiting online to take our places so that that was a nice slap around the face that sounds like the uk response at the moment yeah. <laughs> um i mean the, the funny thing is the government actually mandated uh any government owned building to give uh two months rent free um oh, and ultimately in china pro- property ownership is all the government you know, any any places are owned on a seventy year lease. Like it's not like freeholds or anything like you have in the UK. The the government owns every piece of land in the country. Um, but that trickle down from there's always a government landlord somewhere along the line who's sublet to someone else who's the second landlord or maybe the third landlord. 
but that trickle down didn't happen with any of ours. None of our our landlords got any help from their landlords with the shake that then pass on. Really, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Some somebody somewhere got a hand. Oh yeah, so I mean, I'm sure the, the ultimate person got got they got their hand out and just didn't pass it on. Yeah. Yeah, well, frustrating. Um, so you've been then you you became sort of uh, vocal, I guess, in your in your potential solutions. I know you put a Facebook post out in March, I think, telling people that you know you were quite happy to share the procedures and the changes you'd put in place if people wanted to hear it. Whilst also sort of making the caveat, and before we started recording, you were chatting about um, somebody in Oz that you'd been speaking to. So whilst people, I guess, are very interested uh, to hear what's going on globally, you're very conscious of the fact that yeah, you you can't give advice because each government's response is specific. But there, were there any general things in that sort of playbook you developed or people that were getting in touch that they were finding useful what would be your uh, I don't know your message to the UK I suppose <laughs> um let's think I mean the 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 simplest maxim is preserve as much cash as possible so we we, we went and did a we did notices for our staff and we did some guidelines like don't waste pizza boxes don't waste single use materials uh, make sure you're switching off lights in rooms when you're not in them just reminders of all of this stuff. And we distilled that down to like five things where we wanted them to not waste electricity, to carefully control cost of ingredients and like weigh, weigh things. You know, in a pizza business, you can put too much cheese on. You've got one guy who's being cack-handed for a day and you end up pushing your food costs through the roof. Um, so we, we, we did that. Um, I guess some of the stuff we were doing, you had to make proposals to the staff about, wage reductions we did we did come to an arrangement with them for the first couple of months when some of them were in quarantine and or stuck in their hometowns and not able to get back um finding uh kind of opinion leaders among the staff that you could test these ideas out with and then they probably spoke to some staff my head chef was very good with that he would chat to his his chefs and have have a word and uh find out what they were thinking and they were like oh no the country company's struggling it's okay to take a hit at this time so then you feel a bit more confident going to them with this proposal um i guess uh, you know one, one of the things and it's still the case my best days are the ones when i don't look at the news the news is is unhealthy and does not make me made my day go any better <laughs> reading about what's going on around the world, what's going on in China, what's what all the problems that everyone's facing. It's far better to keep your head out of that, actually, and to just focus on the here and now and try and stay as positive as possible. Um, I think I think that's good advice. Don't 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 watch the news. It has become a depressing. And I think also for us, you know, we're a little bit behind you guys, but I guess the the, the amount of guesswork that's going on about what the regs are going to say or what people are going to say we're going to do, you know, and I, I kind of respect people for trying to stay ahead of the curve and to work out, you know, how they could reopen and what it could look like. But I'd also say it's such a fluid and such a changing uh, scenario that yeah, you can you can go down the rabbit hole of you know what you should be doing, and uh, 12, 24, 48 hours later, it's all been turned on its head again. So I think we're learning to be a little bit more patient. Take one at a time do what we can today uh, and then move on when the next sort of picture uh, comes forward i suppose is that is that still the same in shanghai is it still changing on a week-by-week basis absolutely and you know one of the things we, we we a good good bit of advice would be don't wait for rules and regulations if you think something's a common sense thing for you to do to make your staff safe to give your customers confidence then do it um and actually the regulations may well follow may well follow we we, we thought about, an example, we thought about making our staff wear masks before we, everyone had to wear masks. I mean, obviously that's now such an obvious thing. But, you know, if your instinct tells you that something's the right thing to do, do it. Um, the other thing, you know, don't, don't consider any ideas not worth following up. 
Um, you know, you get a lot of ideas you might reject as being a bit stupid before. Um, but, you know, an example of when we've, we've been selling cocktail packages online with, with our things and it's been helping out one of our friends that is a supplier of spirits. Uh, and we haven't sold a great deal, but it's helping him shift a bit of stock and hopefully helping our customers out a little bit. We've been selling some things at lower margins that really don't involve much effort from us, but it's all incremental revenue. You know, putting putting a bottle of wine online and making fiver on it rather than normal restaurant markets. Well, that's all right. It's still incremental business that we wouldn't otherwise get. Um, yeah. yeah, I would t- certainly agree with that. Common sense. Use your brain sometimes. I think we wait sometimes for regulations and wait to be told, you know, how high to jump. And I'm just like, yeah, you use your brains. But it's funny you mentioned in gloves earlier, actually, because uh, we've just reopened on Friday. Uh, so what's that? Four or five days ago, our little takeaway on the beach, and uh, and it's a pizza pizza place as well. And uh, chef was saying, "I can't wear gloves. I cannot make the pizzas if you make me wear gloves." And we got him to demonstrate, and he was absolutely right. Yeah, the gloves just stick to the dough, and it uh, it doesn't work at all. So, yeah, we've lost yeah, the gloves. We we got rid of them. So basically, anything up to the pizza being booked, they don't have to wear gloves now. It's going into a three hundred degree oven. I mean, <laughs> exactly. There's nothing yeah, yeah, exactly. like that. I guess that's one yeah, more thing. That, uh, that's uh, worth worth. We, we we did a WeChat is also the kind of Facebook sharing thing. We did a post about what we were doing and talked quite a lot. And everyone was doing this, talking about the precautions you're taking. But it's good to do that, and it's good to remind your customers that you're taking care. Um, so we did pictures of the gloves. We did have an incident where a glove got into a pizza. Um, one oh, really? of the one, one of the guys let it get into the dough. Um, oh. Luckily, it was caught before it got to a customer, and that that was kind of the main main thing. We were like, okay, the gloves have to stop because. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's tricky. That's why plasters in restaurants are blue, isn't it? Make yeah, sure they stand out in the food. So, yeah. Um, you mentioned then some good ideas that you know you've done moving online. Just uh, coming to a close, but any any other businesses that you've seen um, that have pivoted in an interesting way, or kind of any ideas that you've seen crop up where you go, uh, I don't know. I love I love the ingenuity of the human race sometimes and the things we'll try and do. But uh, yeah, anything jumped out? Nothing. Nothing that springs to mind immediately. Um, you know, everyone's been sharing an awful lot here. Um, I, the thing that's been better has been how everyone's kind of willing to put com- competition to the side and to help. And there was this, someone created a, a WeChat group and it's got owners of F&B related businesses. And we've just been sharing information on there. Someone went and found out about HR regulations or found out about VAT regulations, sharing that, helping each other. Um, the willingness of people to work together has been reassuring and kind of uh, affirming of, of, of what what we are really like rather than fighting against each other and trying to win business off each other good it's nice to know that's international it comes up on this podcast a lot when i'm chatting to people is uh yeah the kind of hospitality is an industry full of people who fundamentally want to help each other out and you know provide service and look after each other so it seems to be a continual theme we got a similar uh whatsapp group over here it's got about i don't know what it is now it had something like two and a half thousand different right. responses across the country in it and uh, yeah real real sort of point of sharing information uh which has been great and it's nice it's that sort of say all boats are lifted on a rising tide isn't it so if we can all okay. come through this in some guise uh that would be fantastic Fantastic. Well, look, I'm very conscious of the fact that it must be getting very close to your bedtime and uh, your son's done very well in, in not coming out of his room and saying hello to us. Are there any okay. other burning or pressing issues you would like to bring up? Um, no, stay positive. Uh, try yes. and, you, You're learning a huge amount through this. It's been the longest year I've had in a long time. I'm sure I've got a few more grey hairs, but each day is interesting. Each day brings something new. Um, there's no time to wallow in in what's going wrong just try and mix as much stuff as right as possible as quickly as you can and yeah 
perfect. Sounds good advice. Um, I will come over one day, hopefully. I'm reigniting my travel bug, which has become harder with young kids and uh, and a few restaurants, but definitely need to come out and say hello. Uh, where should people go if they want to follow your journey uh, from you know various points around the world? Is there a particular social media channel or website that people should go? I guess internationally, our Instagram is probably the best, which is Home Slice Pizza Shanghai. Uh, there are quite a few Home Slice Pizzas in the world, as I found out after I opened the restaurant and had chosen the name. <laughs> um, yeah, but we are Home, London, home Slice Shanghai. Okay, perfect. Well, I'll get the link off you and I'll pop that in the show notes to this episode as well. But uh, yeah, for now, thank you, Nat, for sparing the time to chat and good luck. And uh, yeah, depending on how this uh, pans out and any second peaks and anything that happens, maybe we'll chat again in the future. But for now, uh, yeah, good luck and thanks yeah. for sparing the time. Lovely to meet you. Cheers. Okay, there you have it. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. And uh, I would love your feedback as to whether you think it's a good idea uh, speaking to some people from some other countries. I've had some uh, potential guests from the US get in touch as well. And I know a couple of restaurateurs over in Australia. So if you head over to humansofhospitality.co.uk, there is a little contact form there. If you're interested in hearing the perspective of other countries, just in general, through sort of general chats with other humans of hospitality, but I suppose specifically around Uh, how they're coping at the moment and uh, the different trajectories and different responses that different countries are putting in place. I would love to hear your thoughts. uh, So please do get in touch. And also, if you know any guests uh, that you would love me to interview, or perhaps you'd like to be interviewed yourself, feel free to send through your details via that contact form. And whilst you are there, uh, pop in your email address for the weekly newsletter that I send out that will keep you up to date with episodes. Uh, Thank you so much. And um, I'll be back with another episode very soon.